Hi, this is Mark Brady. I'm the pastor at Anchor Faith Church in Valdosta, Georgia. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast today. We believe it will bless you and minister to you. I get ready to receive a word from God. I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. The title of my message today is An Open Invitation. An Open Invitation. It's Mother's Day, and um, my wife, one of her favorite things is hosting. If you know anything about my wife, she loves to host. About a year and a half ago, um, we, we moved, bought a new home. And uh, what I didn't realize was buying that home was going to increase our schedule as far as who comes over and the, the events she wants to plan and the things. I mean, she just loves to do that. And our other home, it was a little older and uh, needed some work and, uh, you know, um, uh, wasn't as it wasn't as big and wasn't as in, inviting, wasn't as welcoming. But now she's got the home of her dreams. She's got what she's always wanted and she loves to have people over. And so that's one thing that I love about my wife. If you've ever been hosted at our home or even here at Anchor Faith Church, it translates here. Um, honestly, a lot of what you see, a lot of what we do, hospitality-wise, guest-wise, decorative-wise, that's all her. Uh, she wants to create a place that's engaging. She wants to create a place that's inviting. She wants to create a place that lets you know we've been waiting for you. We've been expecting you. And I believe this is the same approach we ought to have with the Lord. It's the same approach that we ought to have in the kingdom of God. And in Luke chapter 7, we see a story here beginning with verse 36. I'm going to be reading out of the Christian Standard Bible. Beginning with verse 36, it says, Then one of the Pharisees invited him to eat with him. He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with perfume. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She's a sinner. He, he's actually, you know, accusing Jesus of not being aware of what's going on, not being aware of the situation, not having enough insight. But in the very next verse, Jesus reveals just about just how much insight he really does have. In the very next verse, he says, Jesus replied to him. It's funny because he wasn't talking to him. Jesus will reply even when you're not talking to him. You ever notice that? Jesus will have a reply for something that you've just been processing, something you've been thinking on. Uh, one translation says he thought to himself. He's, he's mumbling to himself at best. Most likely, this is just a conversation going on in his head. If he only knew who that woman was. And Jesus says, oh, I know what's going on here. I know more than you think I know. Jesus replied to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, say it, teacher. Confident, right? Sounds real confident. A creditor 
had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. Remember, 500 and 50. Pretty good discrepancy there. Simon answered, I suppose the one he forgave more. Jesus said, you have judged correctly. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, this is interesting. He's looking at the woman, but he's still speaking to Simon. Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she with her tears has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. And just so you know, olive oil, he actually picked a very cheap, inexpensive reference there. It wouldn't have even cost them that much to provide olive oil. But yet she chose an expensive, costly perfume to place on his feet and anoint him. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is an interesting reference because it starts off, if you actually read the context before and you read the passage before, uh, Jesus actually just got done rebuking the Pharisees, saying that, you know, many miracles would be done in front of them, yet they still would not believe that they would see signs and wonders that the prophets of old only dreamt of being able to see and, and, and wished that they could have experienced in their life. And yet these Pharisees were so hard-hearted. These Pharisees were of such a posture of, of uh, distrust and challenging and self-righteous that they could not receive Jesus as he truly was. So the fact in the matter that he's even being invited into Simon's home, a Pharisee's home, uh, most likely he was not invited to this house and welcomed to this house on communion. He was actually invited to this house on curiosity. Many times the engagement that you see from the Pharisees to Jesus was of one to trap him, to test him, to challenge him, to create a reputation of distrust and discord among the people. And ultimately they ran out of tests and they ran out of traps to put him in. So they finally just said, we're just gonna have to kill him. And Jesus's life was actually offered up at the hands of these religious Pharisees and Sadducees. And so this invitation was not of one of, I really wanna get to know you. Jesus identifies that had you really brought me to your house to have communion and to honor me and to respect me and to welcome me, then you would have done these other measures. You would have put oil on my head. You would have uh, 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 kissed me when I came in. These were all um, 
you know, regular ways, traditional ways of welcoming, welcoming someone into your home. Those, anything he mentioned was typical based upon what you expected from that invitation. You know, we all invite Jesus into our lives at, in, in different ways. There's, we all have different motives or maybe I could say different things that brought us to the recognition, I need Jesus in my life. You know, we, we, we make a statement a lot uh, in, in Christianity and in church. Um, I have invited Jesus into my heart. And maybe you remember that day. Maybe you remember that moment. Maybe you remember that event in that occasion. And maybe you even remember what brought you to that. For some, it might be guilt and shame. Um, for some, might have even been fear. You know, there's some pastors out there, they can, they can preach fire, hell, and brimstone so well that you can smell it. You can feel it, right? Um, some have, have, have maybe just on, on the most, uh, you know, immature level and, and the most basic level said, I need Jesus because I'm missing that in my life. Maybe some uh, were motivated by what Jesus could do for them. I heard that he can heal. I heard that he can bless. I heard that my life will be better if I accept Jesus. I heard. And so we all have different motives or different things that draw us to the point that we say, I need to invite Jesus into my life. The motive for this Pharisee most likely was just of curiosity. Most likely was of just basic, uh, you know, on, on a level that there was no relationship desired. I'm not trying to get to know you. I really don't even want to be known as one being around you. Just based on the, the nature of the Pharisees, their mentality, the way that they acted. But now we have a woman that shows up. Now we have a woman that shows up. And this woman comes in without an invitation. This woman just came through the doors and she actually begins to break all the codes of decency. I mean, honestly, the, the way that she's acting and the way that she's presenting herself is actually one that is more of embarrassment. Um, the way that she is walling. And it's interesting because the Bible reads it this way in verse 37. And a woman in town who was a sinner. Now, everyone's a sinner. Everyone that's ever come to this planet, been uh, or existed on this planet, the Bible says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. But why are we identifying that this woman was a sinner? Why are we picking her out? Well, the, the word sinner here actually is translated immoral. She was an immoral person. And by further study, we actually learn that she was most likely a prostitute or at the very least a loose woman, had a reputation of uh, promiscuous and, and easy and, and loose and, and, and lived that kind of lifestyle. So not a woman of great reputation, not a woman uh, that was, and you know, honestly, you have a contrast of people in this room. You've got a Pharisee who has this religious facade about him, 
This religious facade that says, I have it all together. This religious facade that says, I want to invite Jesus into my home. I want, I, I want to hear what he's all about. Uh, let, let's find out what's going on here. More out of curiosity, not a true desire and passion. I need this man in my life. But yet this woman comes and her actions show desperation. Her actions show us that she is a little more invested. Now, she may not be hosting Jesus, but she is coming to Jesus um, tearful. She is coming to Jesus uh, uh, very repentant, very soft-hearted, very uh, moldable, very sorry. And she is taking actions that exhibit her response to Jesus, her motive for coming to Jesus. Remember, Simon invited Jesus to him, but this woman is coming to Jesus. And she's breaking all the codes. She doesn't care what she looks like. She doesn't care what people think about her. She doesn't care what her reputation's going to be. She doesn't care uh, what the barriers are that may keep her from even being in that room or being in the presence of Jesus or even in the presence of these religious leaders. There's, there's, there's no care on her part. And she's taking drastic measures, even expensive, costly measures to present herself before Jesus, to make her case. Jesus gives a parable. And in the parable, he shows this discrepancy between one that is owed, uh, one that owes a great amount of money and one that owes an amount of money, but not as great. And the one who is owed the money forgives them both. The one with the 50, the debt of 50, and the one with the debt of 500. Forgives them both. And so Jesus asks, between the two, who do you think is more appreciative? Who do you think is more grateful? Who do you think values their forgiveness more. And of course, the the man answered, Simon answered, the Pharisee answered, well, I suppose the one of whom was forgiven the greater debt. But here's the thing, guys. No one in here has a greater debt than another. For it only took one sin, Adam's sin, I mean, I'll go as far as even if you never committed a sin in your life, which we know is impossible, but even if you never committed a sin in life, you are already condemned to the punishment of hell because of what another man did. You come in inheriting his sin, inheriting, therefore, his punishment as well. It's not a matter of who has sinned more. It's not a matter of who has done worse. It's not a matter of who has fallen away, walked away, ran away more than the other. It does, it's not a matter of who has offended more times. Because it only takes one offense. God doesn't have a grading scale in heaven of our sin. God doesn't have a grading scale of, well, it, it, the, the, the same punishment for murder is the same punishment for lying. It's the same across the board. What he's identifying here 
is it's not a matter of the sin that's been forgiven. It's a matter of how much we value the redemptive nature of Christ. It's a matter of how we value what Jesus has done for us. And value always is revealed in investment. Value is always revealed in investment. What you sacrifice, what you give up, what you lay down, what you cut off, the reward for growth is pruning. Go read it in John chapter 15. To the branch that doesn't yield fruit, I cut it off. I remove it. To the branch that does yield fruit, I prune it that it may yield more fruit. The reward for growth is sacrifice. Maybe you didn't want to hear that today, but that's the word of God. The reward for maturity, the reward, the reward for going further, the reward for bringing to the Lord is, all right, now I've got to take off a little more because there's still more in you. But the problem is, is that we as believers can lose the value for the price that was paid for our redemption. It seems as if the more we grow, the more mature we become, the better we get at doing things, religious practice, formality, being in the word, going to church, serving your church, being a good person, any natural uh, element that you associate with Christianity. The more we do those things and the better we become at those things, the more we believe we are doing the work and not Jesus. This goes with anything. You know, I've, I've had the, the pleasure of, of watching my son. We have two boys. I've got a, a 11 and a half year old Camden and a almost two year old. It'll be uh, two on June 1st, Austin. And we're a baseball family. And it's never been more revealed than in the last two or three weeks how much of a baseball family we are because it's about all we've been doing. He's playing more baseball than he's ever played. I mean, the only day we're not playing baseball is Friday. I'm, I'm serious. Sunday afternoons, ball field, practice. Mondays, Thursdays, games. Tuesdays, Wednesdays, practice. Saturday, all day. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty burnt from yesterday being out there all day long. We're, we're playing a ton of baseball. And it's been a joy watching Camden grow. I've coached him, uh, uh, you know, honestly, we started throwing the ball around as, as early as two or three. I've got videos of it. And we, we, we skipped T-ball because that's a circus. I don't recommend that to anybody. I mean, if you just need, you just need them to, you know, get some wiggles out or, or do that, that's great. They can do that, but they're not learning much. I'm just letting you know. We skipped that, but I started coaching him when he was five years old. I've coached him every year except for one year. And I've had the joy of watching him grow. But there's been an interesting thing. When he was younger and, and, and he wasn't that good at it, he wasn't skilled at it, hadn't, had, hadn't, hadn't put, you know, things together just yet, his availability was high. He wanted to practice. He wanted to be out in the yard throwing against the net. He, he, Dad, can we go play catch? He wanted to go to the ball field. We'd drive up to the ball field and hit him grounders. And, but but what, I, what I've begun to watch, uh, you know, over the last couple of years is as his ability has increased, his availability has decreased. 
And what I have to work on him now is not proper form in a swing or, or, or proper positioning when fielding a ball or, or, or you know, putting your foot toward the, the home plate as you're making the pitch. I don't have to work on those things. What I have to work on now is him thinking that he hasn't gotten it all together yet. You still need to practice. You still need to show up on time. You still need to work on that. We started working with a hitting coach um, in, in the fall of last year. And, and um, you know, initially, he was bored. Because he's thinking, why am I learning all this all over again? Because, I mean, the hitting coach takes them all the way, you know, peels them back down to the studs almost. It says, we're getting down to the bare basics again. And, start, and, and, and you know, for the first few weeks, I had to encourage him to just go. He knows what he's doing. Listen to what he's saying. And I know in the back of my mind, he's like, I already know where to put my feet. I already know where to put my hands. I already know how to do this. I already, but, but, but what he was working on was, if you're not going to show up and do the small things, you're never going to make it to the place where you're going to be on the path to do the big things. And this happens in our lives. Is the, the, the more that we grow, we become acclimated with something and aware of something and, and things become, you know, to actually be a part of our life in living the Christian life. What, what happens a lot of times is mature people become hard people. And that's what happened with this religious group. That as we grow in the things of God, all of a sudden we start forgetting where we used to be. We start forgetting who we used to be. We, for, we start forgetting the things that we've been brought out of. I mean, what's the last time that you've thought to yourself, all that God delivered you from, all that God set you free? Oh, that, I mean, it, it doesn't have to be anything horrible. You don't have to have nearly murdered someone, committed adultery, been up in the bars every night. Doing, I mean, it's the simple fact you were far from him and he brought you near. He reached out and said, you are mine and I want to show you once again who you are and who I am. Those are things that we need to, the Bible says, forget not all his benefits. Because what happens is if I'm not careful, I will start trading his benefits for my work. And I'll forget his benefits and I'll start reminding myself of what I've become, what I've done, how I gained. Look what I'm doing, just as this religious group. Religion is, a, is, is such a scary thing. Religion is such a scary thing, and this is why. Because it masquerades as relationship. Religion is false relationship. Religion is false relationship. Religion is an inferior alternative to a relationship with Jesus Christ. But the scary part is, is it goes around looking like relationship. Religion is tolerated by the devil. You notice the devil never stopped the Pharisees in their religious duties and practices. In fact, he encouraged it. Religion is tolerated by the devil because it embraces the very nature that he comes from, deception. 
That's what the devil is. He is darkness, but masquerading as an angel of light. The enemy always, let me put it this way, the enemy never intends to be what he pretends to be. It's a false, it's a false identity. And these Pharisees were so caught up in religious practice that they actually killed the one that came to give his life for them. Religious is so dangerous because it, 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 it looks like what you want to achieve, but the practice isn't there. The lifestyle isn't there. The value isn't there. It seems that the more we gain in the natural, the less we value the things of the Spirit. You remember the rich young ruler that came to Jesus. And he wanted to follow Jesus. He had the pursuit. He had the motive. He had the heart. He said, I want to follow you. Show me how I can be a part of your kingdom. And so Jesus said, well, you know, you know the Ten Commandments. Honor those. And his response, I've done that from birth. Since I was a child, I've honored these things. I mean, that was the answer he was looking for. Do something, religious practice, keep a code, do's and don'ts. I'm already there. I got you. So Jesus said, okay, I got one for you then. Since you think you've achieved everything, since you think you've caught everything because you're a rich, young ruler, And you want the things of God. You just don't want it the way God wants it. So let me show you what you need to do. Take all that you have. Go and sell it to the poor. Now we're talking about something that requires him to give up of himself. Now we're talking about sacrifice. Now we're going to find out just how much you value. Because you don't show what you value in what you keep. You show what you value in what you give. You don't show value in by keeping something. Anybody can keep rules. Anybody can keep a log. Anybody can keep a code. Anybody can, can, can arrive at man's standard. But then God will always find a way to get to the one thing you didn't think he would ask for. The one thing that you were hoping he wouldn't ask for. And that's usually the one thing he goes and gets. I've seen it in my life. Just answering the call to ministry. I learned very early on, they taught us in Bible school, don't tell God you will go anywhere but, because he will send you to the but. Why? Keep an open heart. The Lord's plans are much greater. His purpose is far better than anything we can concoct, anything we can put together. Any, any, and, and, and so I learned early on, refuse to put deadlines on something. Refuse to limit it to a geographical location. Refuse to limit it to a title or a position or a promotion. Refuse to live there. Because what happens is is when we achieve things in the natural, we're sacrificing something in the spiritual. We're sacrificing a closeness to his heart. And now it becomes about the things that we do in the places that we go rather than the person that we become. 
I've said it before and I'll say it again. I don't believe God has so much uh, of weight on the things that you and I have the weight on as far as should I go to this school or should I go to that school? Should I, should I move to this city or should I stay where I'm at? Should I marry this person or should I marry that person? I believe that God is more interested in who you will be in that school, at that job, with that person, in that city. That's what I believe God is more interested in. And while we're asking all the superficial, natural questions, God is asking, do you have a heart that's after me? Because you marry that person or that person, will you be the man of God I called you to be? You take that job or that job, but will you be the employer? Will you go there and make influence? Come on. I believe that God is measuring value on a different level than we are. And I believe Jesus in this moment and in this story was measuring value in a different way, transactionally, than the Pharisee was and then the woman, the sinner, the immoral person was. We've got to be very careful with this religion. And this, I do believe it is possible to be a mature Christian with a soft heart. I believe that is possible. In fact, I know it's possible. I believe a real sign of maturity is the moldability that you retain in your heart to say, God, whatever it is, whoever it is, however it is, whenever it is, I'm open to it. I don't really believe it's a sign of maturity at all to just go around masquerading with what you can do when ultimately God doesn't have your heart. A key indicator to religion, uh, this, this, this Pharisee shows us, is how he's pointing the finger at someone else's life and then even accusing Jesus of not really knowing, not really having the revelation and the insight of who this woman really is. I think this shows us a lot right here. Number one, he has completely lost sight of who he is. Religion always points at others, never points at itself. Never does. A religious person will never tell you what their weaknesses are, what they're struggling with, what they're working on, what still needs to be developed, what I still need to walk into. A religious person will tell you all about the people around them and what they need to work on and who they need to become and what they need to let go of. Religious people know how to point fingers. Religious people know how to identify. And and, and as if this Pharisee has more insight into this woman's life than Jesus himself. When in fact, Jesus actually knows more about this woman than the Pharisee does. But here's another indicator of religion. When religion shows up, it'll bring condemnation. When Jesus shows up, he brings redemption. If you see people struggling, see people hurting, see people broken, see people lost, and all you think about is what they're doing wrong and how there's going to be a day when they're going to torment and they're going to they're going to burn up and and man, wait until God gets on, then you are religious. I'll say it as loud as I need to say it. You are religious. But if you see people broken, you see people hurting, and you have a redemptive spirit about your heart that says, man, there's a God that gave his son, gave his life, gave the ultimate sacrifice that you don't have to live that way anymore. 
It doesn't mean the punishment doesn't exist. It means that the punishment isn't more powerful than his redemption power on their life. What's the overarching theme in our lives? To think about what people are struggling with and what's going to happen to them if they don't? We know. We know what the Bible says. We know it's very clear. Paul didn't refrain from talking about, hey, if you, you know, adulterers, fornicators, homosexuals, they're not going to uh, inhabit the kingdom of God. It's very clear. Romans chapter 1. Very clear. The wrath of God is being laid up for those. We understand that. But it didn't keep Jesus from redeeming people and seeing people in brokenness. And if they were willing to be set free, responding with such a heart. All this religious man could do was point out how immoral she is. Why is she even here? Why would Jesus even give her the time of day? If this man only knew, oh, he does. And that's why he's offering to her what you could never give. Religion has nothing to offer but more brokenness. Religion has nothing to offer but compounding the problem within which it found you in the first place. But Jesus shows up. I said Jesus shows up. Religion will shield you from redemption. You want to be religious? You can. You just won't receive the redemptive work of Christ. Because while religion is piling up for itself what it has done or what it has become or what it has accomplished or where it has been or the experience I have or the knowledge that I have. The Bible says knowledge puffs up. Knowledge is is one of the key motivators for religious people. They can't ever know enough. Got to know, know, know. Got to explain everything. They got to understand it before they walk it out. There's no trust. There's no belief. You know, at the end of this passage, you know what Jesus said about that woman? Your faith has saved you. What's that? Your belief and your trust without even knowing how I would respond to your condition. It was her faith. She went in there by faith, believing that if I go to this man, there's something about this man that he has something I don't have and I need what he has and I need to be near him and I need to have a relationship with him and I need to give of myself to him and whatever it co- whatever I can do to demonstrate that I am laying my life down for you. And Jesus said, your faith has saved you. You came in here by faith. I could have kicked you out. I could have ran you out of town. I could have told everybody your business. I I, I could have made it well known all that you've been through, all that you've done. I mean, that's, that's pretty trusting to go to the man with all the supernatural insight and revelation, with all your garbage, with all your baggage, and go to him believing that he will redeem you and not spread further things to harm your reputation. But no, not a religious person. Not a religious person. See, this is the thing. You know, Jesus says in verse 47, Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. He says many. 
See, forgiveness, mercy, grace, it doesn't deny what has uh, been offended. It doesn't deny the offense. It doesn't, it doesn't deny that you ran away. It doesn't deny the accusation. It doesn't deny uh, that we have been living in sin. I mean, how can mercy and grace cover and remove a sin that it pretends was never there? No, it's, it's, it's full up acknowledging. Because here's the thing, God can't heal what we hide. God can't heal what we want to keep hidden. Now, I'm not telling you to go blast it on Facebook. This is all the things that I've done. No, I'm talking about you're making it known to Jesus. And this is the funny thing. You're making it known to someone that already knows. She's coming to Jesus, and Jesus already knows. Of course, the Pharisee thinks he knows. He thinks Jesus, if only Jesus really knew. But why, why is God demanding us to reveal? Because he wants to heal it. It's not a matter of God knowing. It's a matter of you knowing that God can heal it. God can redeem it. God can restore it. God can deliver it. God can set that free. It's more, the acknowledgement, the revelation is more for you than it is for Jesus. When you come to God and you, you, you're, you're, you're letting him know, look, I, I failed you here. I messed up here. I, I'm, I'm broken here. I'm struggling here. You know what he's, he says? I know. I just needed you to know. Us revealing to God what we're offering to him is us acknowledging, I can't do it on my own anymore. I need your power to deliver me. That's the difference. See, ultimately, when I hide it, what I'm really saying is, I don't need you. I got this. That's really what's happening. That's really what's taking place. But if you can get to a place where you can open up and you can give it to the Lord, then now he's saying, great, now I've got a person postured to receive my redemptive work, postured to see my redemptive plan. His forgiveness, his his redemption was there for Simon and for the sinner. But only one received it that day. Because only one was willing to lay down the exterior facade. Only one was willing to peel back the layers and stop masquerading as this person or that. Only one was willing to say, I'm willing to give this over to you. Only one was willing to say, I need you in my life. I cannot go on living this way any longer. Only one was broken enough to get to the point to say, I must have him and his power in my life. Yet the power was present and readily available to forgive anybody in that room. This happened on another occasion. You remember the man that got lowered through the roof? There were Pharisees there that day too. They weren't there to to see a mighty move of God. They weren't there to, to, to just spectate on miracles. They were there to challenge and to test once again. But 
God sent him really, or Jesus really sent him for a loop because he was there to get healed, right? He was there to, to come up off that mat and regain the ability to walk again, right? But he goes a step further. He says, just to show you that I'm a man of God, that I come from God, son, your sins are forgiven you. <laughs> you want to make a religious person mad? Watch sinners get set free. And watch how they respond to that. I'm serious. All of heaven rejoices when one soul comes into the kingdom. And religious are down here. I can't believe he would even be around that person. Do they know what they've been doing? Why would they let that person come to their church? Have you heard so-and-so's going to so-and-so's church? I can't believe they do that. What's wrong with their leadership? What's wrong with that person? Yeah. That's religious people. That's religious people. And they've got verses to back it up. I mean, you can't masquerade, uh, you know, as, as, as righteous if you don't have some sort, of, some sort of scripture. Oh, they'll tell you all about the man that was in Paul's church in Corinthians that was sleeping with his dad's wife. That's a real case. And, he, and Paul said what? Put him out of the church for the destruction of his flesh. Oh, they'll quote you that all. I mean, we, we don't allow that kind of stuff. We don't tolerate that. No, you know how many times Paul gave that person a chance to turn around? You know how many times Paul gave that person a chance to respond correctly to the word of God, to respond favorably? Do you, do you When the word of God comes, it comes for one thing, to deliver you and set you free, not keep you bound, not make you condemned, not bring shame on your life, not to keep you broken in your destruction and think everybody's pointing fingers at you until you look as good as they do. That's taking the word of God and misusing it and abusing it to bring people down rather than helping challenge them to come on up. And the religious activity in these last days, it's got to stop. And I'm talking to the church. I'm not talking to the world. We know what the world's going to do. But the church cannot respond according to condemnation, shame, guilt, until you get it all together. It's not going to work. And that's on us. And every single one of us runs the risk of becoming so religious that we now work in opposition to the king rather than for him. Any one of us do. It's a posture of the heart. It's keeping our heart in a place where we never believe that we got where we are because of what we did. That we're only where we are because of what he did. At the end of the day, the last point I want to make is Simon had invited Jesus into his house. And he had done all the natural things you could do and you would do. Worship team, y'all can go ahead and come. To make his home welcoming, engaging, open to Jesus. But he didn't do those things for the guests. He did those things for himself. It was kind of backhanded. Like, I want you to be impressed with how well I can welcome you 
into my house. It was more as a display and a show of what he had done or had become to impress Jesus rather than really desiring to welcome Jesus into his life and welcome Jesus into, he welcomed Jesus into his house, but he did not welcome Jesus into his heart. And there's a difference. Sometimes we only welcome Jesus into the stuff that we dress up for him. Sometimes we feel like we have to do all. Are you raising your hands and singing to the Lord in here, but at home you're grumbling and complaining? Come on now. Are we treating people in here like brothers and sisters, but we get out there in the world, we don't know how to talk to someone right? We don't know how to be, how to, to be welcoming and accepting and engaging the people out there? The religious people are really good at dressing things up to give off that facade, to put on, to masquerade, to give off that impression. And, they, and this man was more interested in impressing Jesus than welcoming Jesus. But what I find in such drastic contrast is the woman. The woman wasn't dressing things up for him. The woman wasn't coming in with a facade. This woman didn't come in trying to have it all together. The woman wasn't trying to make it all look like she had it all together and impress Jesus. She came in broken. She came in raw. She came in real. She came in who she was. She came in without the facades. You know, in contrast, I, I see that Simon was trying to see if Jesus met his standards. But the woman said, I want to meet your standards. Another identifier of religion is, have you created such a facade and such a world that now you're trying to discern, can Jesus live in this? Or do we remain soft-hearted enough, soft-hearted enough to say, he has a standard that I need to live up to. He has a standard. So I'm not trying to impress Jesus. I'm trying to find out who he really is so I can come out of what I am and I can come out of what I've done and I can come out from who I've been to be who he's called me to be. Could you stand with me this morning? Sometimes we get so busy inviting Jesus into our homes that we forget he's inviting us into his kingdom. See, the open invitation was that all along, Simon invited Jesus into his house, but Jesus was saying, I'm really the one inviting you into my plan, 
into my purpose. And so I just want to take a moment, just posture our hearts as we close this. And if there's any level, just close your eyes. This is between you and the Lord. I'm not going to call anybody up. We're not going to pray for anyone specifically. You know where you're at. We come into churches every weekend with our our best look and our our best uh, impressions and and, and saying things we don't normally say and wearing things we may normally not wear and, and doing things we may not even normally do. Sometimes it's a facade. Sometimes it's reality. Sometimes it's really who you are. Only you know that. But in this moment right now, will you let God see who you really are? Will you let God get to who you really are? Will you let God speak to your heart? Let him invite you right now. He's inviting you. He's welcoming you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast today. We trust you received a word from God. If you enjoyed this teaching, be sure to subscribe to our podcast in iTunes. By subscribing, you'll be sure to receive a new message every week as soon as they are made available. And if you'd like to learn more about Anchor Faith Church, you can stop by our website at anchorfaithbaldosta.com. There you'll find our locations and service times, ministries that are available for you and your family. You can even give financially in support of the ministry. Thank you again for listening, and we look forward to seeing you next time right here on the Anchor Faith Church podcast.